Amen. If you'll, uh, well, I'd say open your Bibles, but you're already standing. So you can read it on the screen. We're going to be in Acts 23 uh, this morning. We're going to be discussing the whole chapter, but we're just going to read the first 22 verses. So here's what they say. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is, res it is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from them, uh, take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him, who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charge, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father and God, we do thank you for your word. Pray that you would teach us and instruct us now through it, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So my wife and I recently learned a very valuable lesson. We learned that our children are not afraid to hold us to our own standards. Our children are not afraid to serve as the hypocrisy police in our household. We routinely tell our kids, uh, particularly our sons, uh, not to take or swipe toys from one another. And the other day, Whitley was putting Ollie down for bed, and he wanted to sleep with a toy that Whitley told him he could not sleep with. And he tried to ignore her instructions, 
And so he just continued to play and acting as though she wasn't saying anything. So she decided she was just going to take it from him. And without missing a beat, he turned to her and said, Mommy, no swiping toys. It was not that long ago that my older son, Theo, got out of bed one night and he busted me in the kitchen with a bowl of ice cream. He was quick to remind me that we weren't having treats that night. And I explained to him that they weren't having treats that night. <laughs> and the point is, even at the age of two and four, people know how to sniff out hypocrisy. And while they couldn't explain it to you, they know it's not fair, they know it's not right. This chapter not only teaches us about hypocrisy, but it also teaches us how to handle hypocrites. And that's what we're going to learn from it. Nature can teach a two-year-old to spot hypocrisy. God teaches us what to do about it. You can probably all think of a time or a situation where you encountered some form of hypocrisy. And perhaps your response was less than Christ-like. I had an opportunity to do that this week. But hypocrisy is a trap. It's an invitation to join the hypocrite and become like them. And when you respond in kind the way they had first uh, treated you, uh, they no longer feel any sense of guilt because you're just like them. They're just like you. So it's a trap, and it's one we need to learn to navigate our way through. So uh, there are a few examples that we're going to see in our text. In verses 1 through 5, we see Paul engaged in a legal battle. Uh, he's engaged with the chief priests and the council. The uh, priests and the council are supposed to be experts in God's law. And they arrested Paul in the temple, saying he had abandoned the law. And so to prove their claim, they decide to also abandon the law. They decide to uh, punch him in the mouth, which was not lawful. In verses 6 through 10, Paul uh, lobs a grenade, uh, so to speak, into the legal battle. Uh, he's, uh, he says he's on trial for his belief in the resurrection. And the Pharisees believed in the resurrection, um, and the Sadducees did not. So uh, the Pharisees saw this kind of as bad politics. Uh, if a man can be put to death for believing in the resurrection by those who don't believe in it, well, what might happen to them? In verses 12 through 22, the chief priests and the council make a plot to kill Paul. More than 40 men take an oath not to eat or drink until he's dead. So Paul has not been found guilty of anything and yet they're ready to kill him. They even make it very spiritual by taking an oath. And then lastly, uh, the portion that we didn't read in this bit of irony, in verses 23 through 35, the Roman tribune doesn't want that kind of thing going on in his territory, so he sends Paul to Caesarea to the governor. The tribune wanted to protect the peace of Rome. He didn't want the blood of an uncondemned Roman citizen spilt on his watch. And so he gets him out of the city, he gets him a large armed escort, sends him to Felix, the governor, who held him until he could face his accusers. This is ironic because it was the Roman who was acting more just than God's own high priest. So we've got hypocrisy all over the place. This is actually a really big deal. Just like a two-year-old can get frustrated uh, by hypocrisy, God also gets very frustrated by it. God gave a thorough law, a very thorough law to protect against hypocrisy, to, to protect against hypocrisy, to protect against double standards. And his own people were refusing to obey it, and God hates that. 
He hates double standards. He hates hypocrisy. I heard a news anchor the other day uh, give a bit of a lecture on their program, um, explaining to their audience what God wants, what God is like. And coming from a news anchor, you can be sure it was full of theological richness and depth. Um, in truth, it had about the, uh, as much theological backbone as a marshmallow. But nonetheless, this anchor, uh, he quoted the world's favorite Bible verse, judge not lest ye be judged. And he quoted it because he thought it was the Bible's prohibition on judgment. That was where the Bible says you're not allowed to judge anything. In truth, that's not what it says. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1 is not a prohibition on judgment. It is a prohibition on hypocrisy. It says, judge not, lest you be judged. For with the judgment you judge, you shall be judged. With the measure you use, it shall be measured back to you. So, the way you make a judgment, that's how judgments will be made against you. If you put your thumb on the scale when measuring something, God is going to put his thumb on the scale when measuring you. If, um, if a business manager fires someone for stealing pens, all the while embezzling funds, God does not forget that kind of thing. He will hold that person to their own standard. God even had very choice words in the Bible for people like that. He uses words for them like snakes, vipers, wolves. And Jesus pronounced woes on the hypocrites. And it's particularly the hypocrites like in our text, those who are supposed to be leading God's people. See, hypocritical leaders will make demands of you or us that they themselves refuse to abide by. It would be like a politician saying, pay your taxes, all the while being engaged in tax evasion. And that's bad. That's hypocritical. Although it probably wouldn't surprise us that much. But what's worse than a hypocritical politician? It's a hypocritical pastor. A pastor teaching his church about marital fidelity, all the while being unfaithful to his wife. A hypocritical pastor is much worse than a hypocritical politician. A pastor is called to teach and to set an example for the flock. So if a church is full of hypocrisy, the most likely explanation is that the elders are also full of hypocrisy, and they taught them how to do it. If you want to know why our nation is in the condition it's in, we can look at our rulers, we can look at our churches. God tells us to do to others as we would want them to do to us. It is a single standard. He will not tolerate double standards. In the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus tells his disciples um, what to do when they encounter situations, uh, hypocritical situations. He tells them, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He, he, in other words, he's sending them out as uh, the prey in the midst of those who are looking to devour. And in that kind of situation, to avoid the wolves, uh, he tells them, or to know what to do, I guess, when you encounter the wolves, he tells them, be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. When the wolves are after you, think like a serpent, but maintain your innocence. It's kind of a weird thing to receive from Jesus. And the wolves that Jesus was warning about were not secular pagans. 
They were those who sought to devour the message of Christ. It was primarily the religious leaders. It was the hypocrites and false teachers. And we're not, re- we're not very used to receiving words from Jesus, instructing his followers to be like a serpent. We don't think of serpents as a very good thing. But Jesus was not saying, be venomous like a serpent, devour your prey like a serpent, disguise yourself like a serpent, lie in wait to strike your target. He said, be shrewd like one. If you're uh, using an ESV Bible and you read uh, Matthew 10, 16, it'll say, be wise like a serpent. And that's not a bad translation. Um, It's just not thorough enough. Uh, The word there is uh, phronomoi. You don't need to know the word, but I tell it to you because it's the same word used in Luke chapter 16, verse 8, the parable of the dishonest manager. This manager had, um, uh, he, he got in trouble with uh, his master, and so he did what he could to kind of uh, keep his friends, and the master commends him for his shrewdness. That word is also the same word used in the Greek Old Testament in Genesis 3.1. Now the serpent was more shrewd or crafty than all the other beasts of the field that God had made. There is a common Greek word for wisdom, and this is a different word. So wisdom is a fine translation, but there's something more to it. Being shrewd is being wise, but there's a cleverness. There is a craftiness associated with it. It's not simple wisdom the way we think about it. It's knowing how to engage situations and people, knowing how to achieve a certain outcome. And it's not wrong to do that. Serpents are crafty. They are shrewd. And that is not a problem. The problem arises when the shrewdness is used in wicked ways, in wicked and self-serving ways. That's why Jesus said, be shrewd and be innocent like a dove. In Acts 24, we're actually going to see what it looks like to be innocent. This week, we get to focus on the shrewdness. So shrewdness is not ungodliness. Shrewdness with innocence is godliness. And Jesus was a master of this. He would never get pinned down in an argument or a discussion. He knew his way through any situation. Jesus was shrewd and he was innocent. And he told his followers to be the same. Paul got this. He understood this. Paul was exceedingly shrewd here in Acts 23, and he tells us how to be as well. When Paul was arrested in the temple, he was praying, and what he encountered there in the temple was a den of vipers. It was a snake pit. He was praying, not doing anything wrong, and they arrest him. They even want to kill him. Paul came to the conclusion that the snakes had taken control of the temple. It's kind of like snakes on a plane, but it's snakes in the temple. And in the first scene, Paul's standing there before the council. He begins to make his defense. Okay, we want to know about your case. So he starts to make his defense. He gets one line into it. He says, I've lived my life in good conscience. And he gets punched in the mouth. We've already got a problem here. Paul looks back at them and he says, God is going to strike you too you whitewashed wall. Now, that may not seem like a significant thing to say, but to the Jewish leaders, it absolutely was. It was a prophetic insult. And the leaders with their, uh, you could probably imagine, their best offended face. You know, how dare you say something like that? Would you revile God's high priest like that? And Paul essentially says, well, of course not. That would be against the law. 
And then he quotes the law to them. Exodus 22 says, you shall not speak evil against a ruler of your people. So it was not lawful for Paul to say what he did. He agreed with that. Why did he say it? Um, It's very likely that Paul had a problem with his eyes, that that was his thorn in the flesh. Um, And that's why perhaps he always had somebody write for him. We don't know that for certain, but it's very possible. Uh, But either way, Paul is standing there. Uh, He says what he does. They say, you shouldn't say that. And he says, you're right. I didn't know who I was talking to. So for some reason, he didn't know he was addressing the high priest. Um, But how did the high priest respond to his own violation of the law? Along with uh, not speaking evil against a ruler of the people, God's law also gave instructions on punishing lawbreakers. God's law says that certain crimes could receive a physical punishment, a a beating or lashes, but the punishment had to be be fitting for the crime that was committed. So just because someone ran over your toe does not mean you get to run over their cousin. The punishment had to fit the crime. Paul had not been found guilty of any crime, and yet the high priest ordered him to be struck. The high priest carried out a sentence without a verdict. That is not lawful. So Paul calls it out, and he gets offended, right? So what's the big deal with the whitewashed wall? In calling the high priest a whitewashed wall, he is referencing Ezekiel chapter 13, where God rebukes false prophets, prophets who would say to the people, don't worry, everything's fine, it's all good here. They're saying, peace, peace, we're at peace, when there in fact was no peace, These leaders who want everything to look so nice and peaceful, so they paint everything clean and white without recognizing that the wall they're painting is about to come down. This would be like if you... um, you're renting or buying a house, perhaps, um, and you're looking online, you find this house that has really pretty pictures, and so you're excited, you're going to go see it, and you pull up to the house, you get out of the car, and you think, whoa, am I in the right place? Because this house is ready to fall down, right? And the, uh, the landlord comes around and says, I know what you're thinking. She's not much to look at, but she's solid. These walls, they're strong. Just throw some paint on it, she'll be perfect, Well, in that moment, you know two things. Number one, you know you don't want to rent that house. And number two, you know you don't want to rent any house from that guy. God didn't want those guys, that type of guy running his house. God hates that kind of thing. So when the false prophets in Ezekiel were lying to the people, God told them those walls that you smeared with that lovely white paint that looks so nice and clean, I'm going to bring them down. And I'm going to send a storm of hail and rain. And when those walls come crashing down, so will you. And then you'll know that I am the Lord. God hates it when people try to lead away his flock. When people try to lure away his bride. So in calling them whitewashed walls, Paul was declaring that these leaders who are charged with upholding the law are about to get crushed by it. It's a serious thing. Um, As an aside, I want to make a point on this. Uh, I think it is worth us considering Paul's obedience to the law. Paul acknowledged that it was wrong to speak evil against a ruler of the people, even an illegitimate ruler. The high priest was an illegitimate high priest. He was legitimately chosen as high priest, but in his actions, he was a very illegitimate high priest. That doesn't mean Paul could could not disagree with the ruler, 
That doesn't mean we can't disagree with our rulers. Call them to turn from sin and foolishness and to come to Christ. But it does mean that we ought not speak evil of president so-and-so or senator so-and-so or congressman so-and-so. We should not speak of them in an insulting way. There is a difference between calling someone a rotten sleazebag and declaring that someone is being wicked and that they need to repent and turn to Jesus. So at a time when there is hardly a shadow of peace in our own midst, one thing we Christians can do is obey God and not speak evil of our rulers. We can speak truth to them, and we must speak truth to them. So consider this situation that Paul's in. He's unable to defend himself. If, if he speaks, he gets hit. Um, he, he can't speak to those uh, who are beating him. So what does he do? He pursues another option. He turns the crowd against itself. He sets a trap for these two parties that were present. They were trying to trap him, and yet they fell into their own pit. The Pharisees and the Sadducees had opposing beliefs, and so Paul exploited that. And he wasn't lying. It really was because of his belief in the resurrection of the dead that he was on trial. He just didn't uh, mention exactly whose resurrection he was talking about. And the Pharisees, who the chapter before were ready to see him put to death, suddenly reverse course and say, no, 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 no. You misheard us. We find nothing wrong with this guy. Why? Why do they reverse course? Because they were not just religious figures. They were also political figures. So you consider the optics. How would it look to start executing members of your own party? Or worse, giving permission to an opposing party to start executing people who think like you do. The pressure was high, and the issue of whether Paul did something wrong or not really wasn't the issue anymore. So the Pharisees and Sadducees begin fighting one another, and it gets violent, which is itself amusing. The, 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 the priests were so offended by how somebody spoke evil, and yet they're willing to get violent. Don't speak evil against your, the rulers of your people, but by all means, bash their heads in. So the Romans, these pagan Romans, have to step in and they have to put a stop to it. They have to step in to rescue the Apostle Paul from the leaders of Israel. This is so backward, but it's exactly what we need to see. Again, we've got snakes in the temple. And so what do the religious leaders do? The, uh, the Roman uh, tribune sends in the people. They stop the fighting. What do they do now? Do they uh, separate, cool down, everybody go to their own corner? will approach this situation calmly, rationally. No, they don't. They start plotting. And more than 40 men make vows. They take oaths not to eat or drink until Paul is put to death. And what's worse, they get the chief priests and the elders involved as well. Think about this contrast for a moment. Paul speaks of one Ananias in chapter 22. And then we're introduced to another Ananias in chapter 23. In chapter 22, Ananias the Christian is afraid of Paul. Paul was an enemy of the church. He was a persecutor of the church. And this Ananias, Paul describes as a devout man according to the law. And this Ananias came to see Paul, who had encountered Christ on the road to Damascus. And Ananias goes in and he lays his hands on Paul and he says, Brother, receive your sight. Ananias the Christian, who was enemies with Paul, is now calling him brother. And now in chapter 23, Ananias the high priest, 
who was supposed to be a devout man according to the law. Paul describes him as a whitewashed wall. And this Ananias also laid his hands on Paul. He arrested him and struck him. What a contrast. Ananias the nobody loves the man who wanted to murder him. And Ananias the priest hates the man who came to love him. The high priest was engaged in a plot to commit murder, and Paul's description of a whitewashed wall was right on. God would not stand for that amongst his people. In fact, if you look back at verse 11, you notice where God does stand. It says, The following night the Lord stood by him, that is by Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. There are a few occasions in Acts when someone is imprisoned and they have a miraculous encounter. One time it happens to Peter. He was in jail. An angel uh, loosed him from his chains and led him out of the jail. Uh, another time Paul was in prison and he encounters some form of angelic or heavenly power that causes an earthquake. The, the uh, jail kind of just opens up miraculously. But this time... It says the Lord was there. The Lord stood by Paul. God wasn't standing with Ananias the priest. He was standing with Paul. The priests had rejected God and God had rejected them. God departed from his temple and he was found in a prison. The Lord stood with Paul in a prison cell. Right now, uh, there is a pastor named James Coates who is imprisoned in Canada. He's sitting in prison. Uh, he was arrested in February. He's still uh, in prison. He's waiting uh, for his court date, and he was arrested because he would not close his church. He wanted to continue preaching the gospel, and they said, if you will close your church and stop preaching, we will let you stay home rather than spend your time in a jail cell. And he said no. So he's still sitting there. In California... The government there continues to try to stop John MacArthur's Grace Community Church from holding its services as well. Uh, the city of L.A. has tried to cancel their parking lot leases, and when that didn't work, they told the church that they were going to set up a homeless camp in the parking lot, to which MacArthur said, great, our seminary students will be out there every day evangelizing those folks. And up to this point, the city has not moved forward with that plan. The point here is, again, Jesus stands with his people. It is better to be with Jesus in a prison than to be in the temple with wolves. 2 Timothy 2 says, if we endure with Jesus, we will reign with Jesus. If we deny him, he will deny us. Paul endured, even in prison. James Coates is enduring. John MacArthur is enduring. So Paul is in prison. He gets word from his nephew that these 40 men, along with the chief priests and elders, are going to ask the Roman tribune to bring him out so they could judge his case more accurately. It sounds very nice. But Paul instructs his nephew to go to the tribune, explain what's going on. The tribune decides to send Paul away. Jerusalem is not safe. Paul's a Roman citizen. He hadn't done anything deserving the punishment that the Jewish leaders were seeking, so he sends Paul to Governor Felix. The tribune writes a letter to Felix explaining the situation. Felix guards Paul in his praetorium, that is his governor's palace, uh, likely putting him in a, a dungeon or cell of some kind. But notice verse 35. Verse 35 says, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. 
governor, this Roman governor, was going to give Paul a chance to face his accusers. Again, these pagan Romans were acting more just than God's own priests. Now, we don't know whether those 40 men who took that vow actually kept it, whether they indeed starved themselves uh, until Paul was dead. My gut says since they were not afraid to make a vow to commit murder, they probably were not afraid to break it either. So, what should we do with this text? We see lots and lots of hypocrisy, and we know God hates it. We know Jesus said we need to be shrewd, shrewd as serpents. Here we see we need to uh, learn from Paul and his shrewdness. But how do we do it? How do we become shrewd if we aren't already? Shrewdness is not simply a natural gifting. Some people have, some people don't. It doesn't work that way. Some people maybe are naturally more gifted in it, but nonetheless, Jesus instructs his disciples to grow in it. He says you need to become shrewd. Be shrewd like serpents. So as disciples here, how do we grow in it? How do we become more shrewd? And the answer is, we look to God. Paul learned his shrewdness from God, and so should we. Godly shrewdness is the avenue that we must take in the midst of wolves. And again, we, uh, we understand serpents to be shrewd, but we don't often think about God being shrewd. But our Lord Jesus was very shrewd. He navigated the wolves better than anyone. In Matthew chapter 22, we see some wonderful examples of this. At one point, he's approached by these uh, legal experts, the Herodians, uh, and they want to test him. They want to see if they can trap him. And so they say, teacher, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? This sounds like a simple question, well, yes or no. It's not. They were trying to trap him, and Jesus knows this. Because if he says, yes, it is lawful for you to pay taxes to Caesar, well, the claim of the, the Roman Empire is that Caesar is Lord. So are they submitting to another Lord? If so, they have something to pin on Jesus. If he says, no, it's not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar, uh, well, then they can go to the Romans and say, this guy is a traitor. You should do something about him. So it's a trap either way. And Jesus responds with great tact and cleverness, very shrewd. He says, give me a coin. Whose likeness is on it? I say, Caesar's. Okay. Then give to Caesar what's Caesar's and to God what's God's. And they don't know how to respond. So this next crew decides they're going to come up and they're going to try to ask Jesus a question. The Sadducees this time come up. And remember, they don't believe in the resurrection. And so they say, teacher, there were these seven brothers and the first one took a wife, and he died having no kids. And so the second brother fulfilled his responsibility, and he married the first brother's wife, and he died having no kids. And then the third, on down, so on until the seventh. So tell us, in the resurrection, whose wife is she going to be? And Jesus, being not all too amused, I imagine, uh, he responds in such a beautiful way. He says, you're wrong. Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. From the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Said, no marriage in the resurrection. Haven't you read your Bible? And he goes on to say, have you not read? What was said to you by God, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. 
The Sadducees don't know what to do with that because they can't reject Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So they also just kind of slither back. At which point the Pharisees decide, all right, we're going to take a you know, swing at this. One of the lawyers says, teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus was not going to elevate one portion of the law above another portion as though to say God's more holy over here than he is over here. Uh, what he's saying is I'm going to give you two and they're going to encompass everything. So what's the greatest commandment? All of it. That's what he's saying. And they don't know what to do with that. So they also back off and Jesus decides, all right, now my turn. I'm going to ask you a question. Tell me, whose son is the Christ? They say, well, he's supposed to be David's son. Okay, great. Thank you for your honest answer. And he says, well, tell me then, how is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord. They don't know what to do. They can't give him an answer. And it says after that, no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. They couldn't go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Jesus, so they just had to back off. See, our Lord is shrewd. And it's not just Jesus. This is a God thing. This is a triune thing. The Father and the Spirit are also shrewd. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus said, when, you, uh, when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and authorities, well, this sounds like Paul's situation. He says, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. When you're in that kind of situation, that's like the Holy Spirit's bread and butter. He's just waiting for the opportunity. The Spirit is ready. He is willing. Paul was in this kind of situation. He had been in the temple. He's now before rulers and authorities, and God was standing with him. And we have reason to believe that it was the Spirit of wisdom who was teaching Paul how to handle this situation. The visit from God in the prison actually, I think, testifies to this. When Jesus was facing temptation in the wilderness in the garden, uh, and in the garden, he was, being, um, he was being ministered to by angels. Paul had just gone through a crazy, crazy ordeal. He'd been arrested. He'd been illegally punished. There was violence around him. He had to get uh, rescued by the Romans. Uh, he's getting ready to face an attempt on his life. And the Lord came to minister to him, to reassure him, this is right. You're going to do more of this. You're going to testify about me in Rome also. This is what's supposed to happen. You're doing great. So we see Jesus is shrewd. The Spirit is shrewd. And just as children learn to imitate their father, that is what Jesus is also doing. That's what he did because the father is shrewd. And though the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made, he was not more crafty than God. God made the crafty ones. Where did he get that from? God is more crafty than they are. He is more shrewd than they are. When the devil, who is the serpent, could not get Jesus to bow down to him in Luke chapter 4. It says he departed, he slithered back until an opportune time. 
If Jesus won't bow down to me, I'm going to lie and wait until I see my moment to strike. That's what snakes do. If he won't bow down to me, I'll kill him. And then, in Luke 22, he comes back out of his hole. We see him again. Satan shows back up. He enters into Judas, who goes to the chief priests and the officers to talk about betraying Jesus. The devil was being shrewd and looking for an opportunity. He was waiting for his moment. But what the devil didn't see was that God had outsmarted him. God is far more shrewd than he. What the devil saw as his moment to strike and to declare victory was exactly the way God had designed to crush him. God told the serpent back in Genesis that though you strike the seed of the woman, though you get his heel, he'll get your head. And that's what happened. The devil struck Jesus. He was crucified. But where was he crucified? He was crucified on top of Skull Hill. And through the cross, God drove a stake right down into the top of that skull. This is a wonderful picture. Through the cross, God crushed the head of the serpent. The skull of the serpent had that cross go right into it. What the devil thought would be his moment of victory was the moment he was actually most exposed and God drove a nail right through his head. Now, the serpent did get the heel. He did bite Christ, so to speak. And if a serpent bites your heel, you are likely to die. And Jesus did. The devil bit him and he died. But the devil didn't understand the Lord's plan. He did not understand the Lord's shrewdness and he didn't understand the Lord's innocence. The devil thought he was getting rid of Jesus, that he would turn the people against Jesus. But what actually happened was that God was laying the guilt of all the sin of his people onto Jesus. So by killing Jesus, the devil, in a sense, made the offering for sin. God laid all the weight of sin onto Christ, and the devil was the one making sure the sacrifice was accomplished. He didn't plan on that. And if sin had been paid for, if somebody was punished for it, it received the just sentence that it was supposed to get, Well, it can't happen twice. You can't be judged for the same crime twice. So as a result, sin no longer held any weight against anyone for whom Christ died. Anyone for whom Christ has paid their ransom, their sin is gone. Their guilt has been atoned for. That is to say, you and me, Christ died for you. Your sin has been taken away. You can't be judged for it again. And then... To seal the deal, because Jesus had no actual sin of his own, because he was entirely innocent, and death had no right, no legal standing to keep him in the grave. So Jesus died, he spent three days in the grave, and then our Lord got up and he walked out. And his disciples watched him, and they met with him, and they ate with him, and then they eventually watched him ascend into heaven where he sits now, alive, on the throne. God outmaneuvered the devil and used the devil's plan to crush his head. He turned his own plan against him, and he set his son as ruler of the world. God is shrewd, and by his shrewdness, he not only outsmarted the serpent, he also crushed him. What does this mean for us? Jesus says we need to learn to think like this. 
We need to be wise. We need to be shrewd like God, like Paul. And it's true. We do need to learn this. In our time and culture, we need to learn how to navigate injustice and hypocrisy. So how can we develop it as a church? How do we prep for our encounters with the wolves and the snakes? I want to give you a few tips. So to develop shrewdness, you should, number one, worship God. It seems obvious, but it's profound. Worship God. The Bible says you become like what you worship. God is shrewd. If we want to be shrewd, we want to be like him, we ought to worship him, we will become like him. God offers himself to us here in the word and in the table and in the fellowship. Make this a crucial part of your life. Worship God. That's the first step to becoming shrewd. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. As an addendum to that, I would also say trust God. Paul was not weighed down by his sin, though they were many. Paul was a murderer. And yet he tells the high priest here, I've lived my life in good conscience. I wonder if somebody threw your worst sins in your face. Could you be free of them? Could you own them and say, yep, I did all that. And have it take, have no weight or impact or effect on you. Paul said he lived his life in good conscience despite all of his sins. He takes the weight of sin off of you so that when somebody throws it in your face, it doesn't weigh you down. It doesn't stop you. Christ sets you free from the weight of sin. So worship him. Trust him. Secondly, know your Bible. Know your Bible. Know its doctrine. Know what it teaches. Jesus said to the Sadducees, you don't know the scriptures. Haven't you read your Bible? The Bible is God's written message. We need to know what God has spoken to us. I would encourage you to do the daily Bible readings if you are not, or if you have some other plan, that's wonderful too. Be engaged in the word. We must know what God has to say and what he's like. If we don't know it, we should not imagine that we will fare much better than whitewashed walls. We'll start to do just whatever makes sense to us in our own minds. Number three, to develop shrewdness, confess your sins. Acknowledging weakness confounds the world. Paul was not afraid to acknowledge his weakness in this chapter. He said, you're right, I shouldn't have said that. And that was the end of it. When you don't have to put on airs and show yourself to be strong and above everything, but are content to know that God has dealt with your sins and that he still welcomes you into his presence, you don't have to prove anything. When you're comfortable at the back of the line, the world loses its grip on you. God says when we are weak, then we are strong. When the world looks at you and says, you're weak, you've got all of these problems, that's when you can say, yes, I am, and I'm free of all of them. That's actually a wonderful position of strength. Number four, laugh. Laugh. God is not afraid of his enemies. Psalm 2 says that God laughs at those who oppose him. When you laugh at the foolishness of God's enemies, when you are not afraid of them, they will not understand you. So laugh. Be joyful. Number five, pay your debts. Owe nothing to anyone. The saying goes, if you take the king's coin, you become the king's man. Well, we don't want to be the king's man. Um, 
this church did not participate in the uh, payroll protection plan or program, whatever it was, uh, because we did not want the government's money. The government has a grip on nearly everything, it has a grip on the schools, because the schools take its money. We call them public schools. The truth is they are government schools, and we do not want to be a government church. So we did not and will not take the government's money. Uh, it does not work the same with individuals. The government already has access to your account, so they can just send the money straight to them. Um, and I imagine for uh, many of you that has already happened. And so if the government has sent you uh, money or is going to send you money, here's what I would encourage you to do with it. Don't use it to become a slave to the government. Don't use it to get more into debt so that you need more of it. Use it to pay your debts. Use it to kingdom, for kingdom purposes. Give it away. When they can't shackle you with their golden handcuffs, they will not be able to control you. Do not become enslaved to the government because they keep writing you checks. Be free Christians. Don't buy more house or car or something than you can afford. Don't use it to bump up your lifestyle a notch. It will make you dependent upon them. And we are to be content with what we have and dependent upon Christ alone. Um, that said, I do want to acknowledge that people are struggling financially. And so if God has sent you a check through the means of the government, give thanks to him for it. Don't feel guilty about it. But here's what I would encourage you to do. Use it and give thanks. Use it for your necessities. I would not use it for your luxuries. And lastly, train your children. If you have children, train your children. Our culture does not know the difference in ones and zeros anymore. They deny the obvious. They think they can whitewash a girl and call her a boy. They think they can whitewash a boy and call, her, uh, call him a girl. They call it beauty and progress. When in truth, that progress is going to come crashing down like a whitewashed wall. Culture can't survive in that kind of madness. Paul perceived the division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and he let the corrupt system eat itself. And the hypocritical parties present started to attack each other. Train your children so that they will grow up and be more godly than our rulers. Train them so that they can see the weakness in the enemy's armor and they know how to engage with them. The world says, let your kids find their own way. Let them take their journey. God says you're wicked if you do that. God says, teach your kids the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. This is hard to do. It requires a lot of faith and a lot of hard work, but God stands with those who trust him. And these are principles, tips to develop shrewdness. Shrewdness does not always look the same, but it is required. It's required at different times and in different ways. And developing shrewdness will make you a more tactile, uh, a more, uh, sorry, not tactile, more tactical uh, and agile Christian. It will make you uh, able to see the traps. You will not get tripped up by the tricks of the world. The Lord instructed his disciples to be shrewd as serpents so that they could be ready for their encounter with the wolves. There are plenty of wolves around. Again, I said a hypocritical pastor is the worst of them. So always need to be on the lookout for wolves. There are plenty of them around. And this is a skill that largely we have neglected and we need to recover. 
We need to develop a sense of gospel shrewdness, godly shrewdness. And it won't always look the same. You will have perhaps different kinds of opportunities in a school or in a workplace or with a neighbor. You never know. Perhaps you'll have the opportunity of a Paul before a council or an Abigail who rejected the foolishness of her husband Nabal or a Solomon who was full of righteous judgment. But if we never find ourselves in situations like these, we will never need the Holy Spirit to come and teach us. Church, I want more of that. I want more of the Spirit for me. I want more of the Spirit for you. I want more of the Spirit in us, less of the world in us. Now, the triune God is shrewd. He is shrewd, and his shrewdness has outsmarted our enemy. God, through his shrewdness, put a nail through the skull of his enemy, and he has set his son on the throne of heaven. This is our God, church, and he stands with us. Follow him. Follow him to the cross, and he guarantees that you will also follow him out of the tomb. So let's pray. Our Father in God, we praise you, for you are indeed shrewd. You made beasts to be crafty, but you are greater still. In your shrewdness, you have uh, crushed the head of the serpent. You have frustrated the plans of the enemy. You have risen your son back to life. And you have risen him up into heaven to sit on the throne of heaven and earth. Jesus himself says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. We rejoice to be your people, to know that Jesus is the king and that we get to be part of your kingdom, not even just your servants, though we would delight to just be your servants because you are so good, but you make us your very own children. You have promised us an inheritance with Jesus. Oh, Lord, bless us. Give us strength to follow and to endure with Jesus that we might also reign with Jesus. And if we follow him in whatever the cost may be, we can be sure that we will follow him as well out of the grave and we rejoice in the hope and assurance that we have in him. Thank you, Father, for taking care of, for getting rid of, for putting all of our sins to death that we may walk in true life. We pray this in the name of the one who gives us life, the Lord Jesus. Amen.